Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Weird Era podcast. Today, we're talking to Claire Bay Watkins. Claire Bay Watkins is the author of the short story collection Battleborn and the novel Goldfame Citrus. She has received the Story Prize, the Dylan Thomas Prize, the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award, and the Rosenthal Family Foundation Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. A National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, Watkins is a professor at the University of California, Irvine, and lives in 29 Palms, California. I Love You, But I've Chosen Darkness, a novel, was released this fall in October. Leaving behind her husband and their baby daughter, a writer gets on a flight for a speaking engagement in Reno, not carrying much besides a breast pump and a spiraling case of postpartum depression. Her temporary escape from domestic duties and an opportunity to reconnect with old friends mutates into an extended romp away from the confines of marriage and motherhood and a seemingly bottomless descent into the past. Deep in the Mojave Desert, where she grew up, she meets her ghosts at her return. The first love whose self-destruction still haunts her. Her father, a member of the most famous cult in American history. Her mother haunts her, her whose native spark gutters with every pa- passing year. She can't go back in time to make any of it right, but what exactly is her way forward? Alone in the wilderness, at last she begins to make herself at home in the world. Bold, tender, and often hilarious, I Love You But I've Chosen Darkness reaffirms Watkins as one of the single signal writers of our time. Thank you so much for being here, Claire. Thank you for having me and for reading that. <laughs> <laughs> um Happy to. I have been a fan of your work since I first read Battleborn and was just as pleased with Gold uh, Gold Citrus. I'm butchering the title, but Gold Fame Citrus. Um, it's not I also a natural just, title. It's not a no. natural title. Everyone stumbles on it. Half the people are like Gold Flame Citrus. And I'm like, why not? Why not? Honestly, it's not a natural title. You, you did it on purpose to, to mess with us, to mess with the yeah, readers. That's exactly. okay. Yeah. Um, I also just have a personal affinity for California Gold Rush fiction, starting with an affinity with John Fonte when I was much younger. So it was just a real delight to come across your work in uh, contemporary fiction. Um, and I sort of want to ask you a very Nosgardian question in that I'm curious about your relationship to memory as a writer. Um, there's a vividness and endless alertness to your prose. It feels very alive, and it's something I really admire. Um, A lot of that vividness, however, is usually tied to the environment. Again, this relationship with California gold rush fiction has to the scorching desert, for instance. Um, And I'm wondering, do you just have a really good memory, or are you constantly writing to preserve that memory? And if you do have a really good memory, is it one tied to the sensory experiences of your environment? Um... I don't think I have a good memory at all. I have like a Swiss cheese memory, I think. Um, and I am, but I'm endlessly curious about it. Um, I think it appears like I have a good memory. And one of my friends, like a very early reader, my friend Daniel said that he was like, I think it was the first piece of feedback I ever heard about this book. He said, you have such a good memory. And you remember, and I said, what do you mean? That's not true. I said, that's a, an aberrant opinion of me so far, right? But um, he said, you remember the names of everything. And I was like, of course, I don't remember them. I look them up later, but that's that's pretty easy to do. The key is to make it seem like that's in someone's thoughts, that they would be that precise and they would have the names. Because I want to have as much like precise poetry as I can and I'm also just a very language driven person like when I'm 
magpieing about, it's a phrase that gets me. Not like, I don't really have much of an eye for like plot or anything, but like this piece of mining propaganda that's all over Nevada, if it, it the slogan is, um, if it isn't grown, it has to be mined. Hmm. Um, and so the, one of the chapters is named that. And that concept hmm. of like, we have two ways of getting things on this earth. It's either you grow it or you mine it. And I thought that's just such a like uh, tempting metaphor for personal growth, psychology, consciousness, um, and dovetails nicely with this like apocalyptic um, time. Because mining, of course, today is really different from our beloved legendary gold rushers and um, mm-hmm. those like little yeoman mines. It's so destructive. So it's scary, too. That's a rambling answer. <laughs> no, no. I'm thinking specifically, I guess, about dialogue, too, that happens um, in this oh. book with, mm-hmm. with you know, um, people in, you know, the narrator's life. There is such a precision to that dialogue. It's very much mm-hmm. as though you're recounting a very specific conversation. Um, but hearing you talk about it, it sounds like you had to grow that dialogue it it wasn't like a verbatim conversation that stuck in your head it was it was more like an experience that you then had to evolve out of is that right yeah yeah it's based in most of it is based in things I lived moments I lived and people I know but then they grow yeah like in the fictional realm they're embellished and there's composites and there are but it's so fun and trippy after a while like this book took me six years so after many many times of doing this and rewriting very meticulously so that it sounded exactly as you say like you're just listening in to old friends like one of the I, I one of the characters is based on a friend I've had since the second grade and I've just been obsessed with the way he talks and thinks and sees the world is and it Ty? He's so, yes yes <laughs> Ty. Yeah, that, that yeah. comes across yeah Mm-hmm. So the other day I was talking to my friend whose tie is based on, and he was basically like, I'm sorry I didn't take your bag in the airport that one time I picked you up. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I think I made that up. I don't think that ever happened. But he thought that it was something he would do. I mean, he was like, I don't remember doing it. But if I did do it, it's just because I thought you could, you're could. you perfectly capable of carrying your own bag. And I'm like... Yeah, and that becomes really important, like, thematically, that she can carry her own bag or let it go if she doesn't want to carry it anymore, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to – it's, like, the first time he doesn't – he doesn't cooperate with the script of American normal. And so he starts to be this, like, site of growth. And then she encounters him, right, when she's, like, really ready to grow. Like, I'm – I think at the beginning of that trip to Reno, she's just like, I'm done suffering. I want to do something else now. Well, but what should that be? Like she's said no to many things she doesn't want to be doing anymore. And she doesn't really care what most people think. She's willing to be misunderstood by unhealed people, as the therapists say, you know. But she wants to know what will grow in its place or will I have to mine it? Will I have to do even more mining, which it turns out she does. 
we all do, I think. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of sort of breathtaking moments in this book that embrace immediate desire, sort of justifies it even. We have this narrator who's in an open relationship with their partner and is sort of embarking on these experiences that simultaneously hurt him, but also permits herself to experience these rare bursts of pure joy, specifically during a time in which she's mostly faced with misery. So there's this idea that if you're chasing after pleasure, you know, you should find it, experience it, since you're lacking it anyway. I think, you know, that's the point of open relationships in the first place, possibly. Um, and on page 45, uh, she writes, my mother lived by her own code, something like you won't see it all if you don't trespass a little. Um, on page 55, we have the narrator's mother, someone suffering from addiction, remarking on addiction, saying, that's not how it works, she said. You can't get addicted to anything that's good for you. Do you think pleasure is antithetical to peace? No, not at all. Not at all. I think it is a crucial tool of reorientation towards peace and away from war or violence or um, unnecessary suffering. Like suffering is a part of life, but we have created a culture of extra optional suffering for profit. And mm -hmm. the oppo that if you feel your way into that, it feels terrible. And to feel away from it towards love like the touch of a friend or a lover or many lovers or the sun or hot springs um it's it, it's like a crucial kind of reorientation i i, w I wrote a bit about this thinker sarah ahmed and she, in her book living a feminist life she her basic thesis is so it was extremely eye-opening to me because it was very much about my own uh, ongoing awakenings, I'll say, especially around um, feminism, pleasure, politics. Um, I'm just watching this like stray dog walk through my property here. <laughs> anyway, um, Ahmed, partly her argument is that um, feminism begins not when you learn the word feminism in college or whatever, but way back when, as she puts it, Things happened. Things happened. Your body, what your selfhood was violated in some way, and that was permitted because you were a girl, a, a really little girl. And you felt it was wrong. You knew it was wrong, even if you couldn't do anything about it, or if it also felt good, or if it was a complicated, confusing thing and you didn't know. But some your spirit said no. And then eventually, maybe in college, you learn the re word for that and so on, right? So she says, a body in touch with the world is a crucial instrument. Otherwise, you just have the received scripts of a culture where um, trespass, it's a circumscribed existence. I think that's what's interesting about the con that mother saying, you'll you won't see it all if you don't trespass a little. It's like, if you follow these rules, you won't get to be fully alive, fully yourself, fully whole. And you'll think that feeling good is bad. That's like, not my idea. That's um, old stuff, old Christian patriarchal Puritan capitalism. Well, that's exactly it. I think it is quite like religiously rooted and it still permeates our culture. There's this idea of indulgence. And I mean, mm -hmm. um, the narrator is hurting people around her in her life in this yeah. choice for yeah. pleasure. Um, yes. And, you know, there is a way in which I understand the morality that is embedded in that. You, 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 we should live our lives not hurting our loved ones, right? I, that is an ideal um, 
you know, way to, way to live. But at the same time, that very thinking is what robs most people of this possibility and this openness towards pleasure. So it's almost like you have to choose suffering in order to be good to others, which I disagree with. I think I, I love this narrator for just being so open um, <clears throat> and to, to, you know, they're in this place of misery, but why not take pockets of joy? Why not absolutely like welcome them into your life when you're in this place of misery? But I just wonder how to sort of negotiate the morality behind that because on the other hand, you don't want to hurt your loved ones, right? Absolutely. Certainly. Yeah. The way I, uh, what was illuminating to me in this line of thinking was parenting and learning to, what would I do with my child when she like transgressed a boundary and learning from like parenting literature, like how to parent books, the difference between punishment and consequences. Like Mm -hmm. she's moving through the world. There are going to be consequences for her actions and I can't and shouldn't shield her from those so long as they're safe. Right. But then there's Mm -hmm. punishment, right. Where it's like, um, you this is a bad example but anyway there's a punitive approach that like enforces something and then there's like you have your actions have consequences you're an actor in the world and you are interconnected with other people right so when she makes a decision she does i hope my my aim was that she would not be punished but she would have consequences her actions would have consequences because she has agency and She's making decisions. I haven't read many reviews, but I did read one, and I only disagreed strongly with one little sentence that said she makes no decisions. I think she's really choosing a lot um, in the book, and that's pretty much like the crucial verb. I mean, it's in the title, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, choosing. Um, speaking again of this urgency for pleasure in this book, at one point early in the novel, you sort of disavow a desire for normalcy. Um, on page 101, I took normal as an insult that knowing these troubles were widely felt didn't ease them, only meant that on top of my avoidance and guilt and shame and numbness, I now felt boring, a kind of death. As a child of parents with a fraught bra- background, you know, as a person who I assume lives with a sort of unintended, you know, uh, reputations or responsibilities of your sort of famous parents, your father, a former member of the Manson family, etc. Can you elaborate more on what could be insulting about being normal? Hmm. <clears throat> I was um, thinking about what comes to mind is this writer, Kashana Kali. In the Believer magazine, she wrote about the history of the word woke. And she's says that it is for, um, she describes people who fall between the cracks of American normal. And American normal. This is the first time I'm hearing this. Can you, can you like describe that to me? And maybe as a Canadian, (laughs) I'm I'm missing it. it It's like, um, well, I would say it's a lie. It's a myth. It's like the idea of normal, the idea that there are, say there are houses where everything is fine in the house. It's like just a process of it, like intent, like repression, extreme repression and um, like replacing, I suppose I would say like it involves replacing like the spiritual realm, realm of existence with 
like capitalist values, like hyper capitalist, hyper capitalist, late capitalist, like civilization, like it involves, I would say the repression of our like culpability in um, ruining the planet and agreed. And the idea that like, you have to do that for the house, the children, the white picket fence, the job, and that that is the only way to be good and to be whole. I guess it's like classic midlife crisis sort of concern <laughs> in, in that way. You know? mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, I think I would agree with Kali, who says that basically American normal is, is like a lie. America, it, it, I mean, I've always felt really... Um, much more like Nevadan or Western than American. Mm-hmm. I hear that a lot uh, from from yeah. Nevadians. <laughs> yeah, we have a really fraught relationship with the federal government. I mean, 85% of Nevada is owned by the federal government. So the whole state of Nevada is actually just these little patches. It's a very mm-hmm. complex relationship. And plus add in nuclear bombs, mm-hmm. the atomic age, which never really ended in Nevada. Mm-hmm. And in the Mojave Desert, there's still this existential threat that is now kind of morphed into nuclear waste storage, just like dumping it into the ground, or um, now drought and collapse. Like when I talk to people around here, um, it's like people talk about their falling water table like the weather. Mm. Anyway, how did we get to drought? <laughs> we were talking about, um, the question was, if you could yeah. elaborate more on what could be insulting about being normal. Well, yeah. Well, because it's like, I guess in that moment, she probably wants to be special and be more interesting than normal. It's like, I've never really um, thought that normal was good. I, mm-hmm. I don't believe in it, first of all. Um I think it's when I was young and because my dad died when I was like six, mm-hmm. um, I felt like our family was really wrong and broken because of that. And I also probably sensed some, because we were poor, we were wrong and bad as well because my dad had been involved in the Manson family. We were wrong and bad because my grandma was a change girl at Caesar's palace and had been divorced like four times we were wrong and bad the way we talked was wrong and bad all that stuff like that's what it meant to be normal that's what what normal was saying is like be middle class be a good consumer be a good neoliberal citizen and watch the desert get like eaten up you know so that's what would be i guess insulting about it to her a mixture of good reasons and bad reasons to resist the concept of normal Mm mm-hmm um, I'm a huge sucker for family relics. I mean, just being born as a second generation Bengali Canadian, you know, <clears throat> have these parents who arguably grew up on another planet, let alone generation. There are things I can't possibly grasp living in a village in Bangladesh to start a village in Bangladesh. So when I, when I'm given these rare anecdotes or, you know, even looking at my dad's first driver's license, it tears me up in, in a really kind of beautiful way. I'm just like, who is this person? How is the person who created me also this entirely separate person who has yet to make me? Um, So my question is, in being given access to all these historical artifacts of, 
your parents, be it the letters to Denise, be it interviews you can actually YouTube. How surreal is it to time travel like that? And and what does putting it to pen do? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're totally right that the way the artifacts are like this portal into this human who has nothing to do with you at that time. That's what I loved about the letters. They span, Mm. they're arranged in reverse chronological order, but they span from um, age like 18 to 10, you know? And yet, like, I really see myself in her. Like, I see my language, the way I talk. And I have like co- written those with her like I heavily edited hers and my editor also did a lot of um there was like probably three times as many letters in the manuscript that I sent my my editor and she had this brilliant approach to them but anyway yeah it was um it was just like pretty instinctual like I got the letters and I wanted to um write a transcript of them for my siblings so that we had like an electronic copy of the, just the record of what she said, which is the same thing as a manuscript, like a book manuscript, you know? And then I started, I, I sent that to them and I was like, here's mom's letters. And I have like the hard archive here. And then um, I meanwhile kept working in this word document and um, trying to like, approach my mom as a character that I was building, you know, and because um, to write good characters, you have to have like a three dimensional view of them as whole people, really complicated people. And I did have had that because for a long, long time about my mom, because she was a drug addict and she was um, very, sick and hard to be around and yet I knew of course that she still loved me and all of the work that you see kind of now with like a harm reduction model trying to do to the culture here in the U.S. of like drug addicts are human beings and you're not going to help them unless you understand that about them that was like Mm -hmm. my childhood like I lived that reality all the time so Mm -hmm. I wanted to I guess, put it in a book for other people to see how obvious that is, right, to me. The the person who's in the letters, mm-hmm. you said it yourself, you, you recognize her, you, you even, like, recognize a bit of yourself in them. Do you think you would have been friends with that person? You know, change the relationship, like, you're, you're Denise, or you're, like, one of the peers, like, yeah. just based on this, like, opportunity you've been given to time travel... Mm-hmm. Do you think you would have been friends with that person? Yes. Yeah, I do feel like I was friends with her. Like, um, I mean, we were friends when she was alive, but also as a girl, like that young person. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I kind of, because this is like the circular shape of our lives. Like when we have a child and she is going to school we also become ourselves going to school again so I was kind of like parented by that girl self like my mom's inner child parented me and so she told me a lot about how to avoid sexual violence all Mm -hmm. the time in a way that 
was a lot to deal with as a kid. Mm-hmm. And there was like no subject that couldn't be weaved into like a cautionary tale about domestic violence or, you know, how important it is to have your own money. How And, and of course, it's because she had been subjected to so much sexual violence and had been so, felt so trapped. And you, I felt like a relationship like a with a man is the only vehicle that you have to get safe and get free. Um, by the time I come into consciousness at like age six, my dad is already dead and she's like a single mom. So she already knows that. But watching her letters, I got to see like where it came from, how hard won her feminism was and why she so urgently gave me those talks before I went to sleepovers and told me, this is a name for every part of your body. If someone touches you, tell me, and I will believe you. I remember being told that, like, um, vehemently all the time. Like, wow. whatever you say, I'll believe you. Yeah. Because I think people didn't believe her. Um, <clears throat> do you think this book would have been possible had you not been provided with the letters um, uh, your mother wrote in her youth to her cousin Denise? Not this book. Not this particular book. No way. Of course not. No, because... I didn't really know any of this stuff um, about her childhood. Um, maybe what the, the thing that was so surprising to learn from the letters was um, how, because my grandmother worked so much at Caesar's Palace and she had worked there since she was a teenage girl. She has a story of walking down the street in Vegas on her way to school. And she said, a man pulled me into Caesars and said, you're beautiful. You work here now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was the end of school for her. And she stayed at Caesars palace her whole career. And she had three kids and a bunch of, uh, alcoholic men for husbands mm-hmm. and, um, was really poor stole from Caesars palace <laughs> to make enough to get by, which I'm like, I salute you, Grandma. Absolutely. Um, and my, but and then my my mom is the youngest in this family, and she's left alone a lot, and is exposed to a lot of like hard, intense, scary things, you know. And um, she'd become really tough and super self determined, um, and dedicated, and like a very a force of nature of a person by the time she was my mother. And some of these letters were like me getting to see, Oh, that's because of this big gnarly. So like sad making stuff that happened to you as a little girl. And it, it in a way happened to me as well. Um, there's a scene in the book where the narrator, and honestly, I'll stop tiptoeing now, or maybe we should just ask the question, why build this as a novel? The narrator is Claire Bay Watkins. I, mm-hmm. I'm asking you about your mother, not the narrator's mother. Why build this as a novel? Well, because most of it is made up and not true and did not happen, probably. I mean, a significant enough portion to be sued. Believe me, if I could make that big memoir money, I would. Um, <laughs> but but I, I don't because I like the tools of novel novels. I like... Um, um, having a more circumspect approach to meaning making 
I like being able to like ask questions more than answer questions. Um, I like being able to imagine and then to archive and never really say which I'm doing when, I guess would be the answer. But, but then why, why have a narrator named Claire Bay Watkins with yeah. the parent? Why the names? Why even the... Because the, it's about me, you know. Yeah, because it's like about... It's like a novel in the form of an autobiography. Like I wanted to look at... My subject is myself and my life and my generations and my land that I come from. Um, the 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 vehicle the subject is the truth the vehicle is the novel like it's like making a realist painting or something right there's like Mm -hmm. a the subject and then there's the mode of inquiry that you you look at with it so yeah does that make sense well there's a scene in the book where again the narrator or i'll stop tiptoeing you know you are about to present a talk at high school at a high school um we the reader are given this intimate knowledge that uh, the narrator is not in the best place emotionally and mentally seconds before this talk is set to happen. Um, and so, you know, in blurring this line between fiction and nonfiction, there's an obvious nakedness of self in this novel um, and arguably one without the safety and backdrop of fiction that fiction can provide. Yeah. So there's ways in which you're revealing things in this text you, 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 do not, you did not reveal in the moment. Um, and I'm wondering how vulnerable do you feel having this book out in the world? Um, any more or less than you do when you have a work of fiction out in the world. Yeah. I mean, all of that is so well said. Yes. That little scene where she has just like been up all night and accidentally like walked into the river and stuff and is still wet and is totally unprepared. Um, That never happened, but it is a performance of what the novel is kind of doing. And that's just, as you say, that's so smart. Yeah. Um, To the question of vulnerability, it is different. I'm, I've only, this is my third book, and uh, every time I publish, it's a vulnerable-making thing. And I really think, you know, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. Like, there should you should have some skin in the game, and there should be some... A cl- to me, good writing ha- is clo- pretty close to the bone. And writing is private and solitary, usually, and publishing is not. And I prefer the former, <laughs> but I'll do, I do the latter. Um, so it's always vulnerable making, but this one is different. Yeah, because it, it, the subject is more, is me, is things that happened to me. And also things that, that didn't happen in a literal five senses sense, but did happen because there's an emotional truth like <clears throat> This book wouldn't have ever been finished if I didn't learn something about how I feel about motherhood or love or the Mojave Desert or, you know, death, right? It's just that's the – every book has kind of its own terms of success, I think, and this book wouldn't work. It wouldn't end up being a good book if it didn't also – become the byproduct of a process of like uh, self-knowledge and growth for me. Which is is, Exactly. So it's very vulnerable making to share the artifact of that process with people. But it's also, that's how I think the medicine works, you know? 
you circumvent this um, vulnerability, vulnerability a lot of the times as anyone would with humor. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of this part in the book where you're talking with friends on page 87 saying, actually, I've been described as searingly brave mm-hmm. um, by who challenges your friend. N plus one, your fr- you say. Your friend says, what is that? Um, and I laughed. I laughed because here's such a meta moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, m- mocking sort of your maybe reputation as like a writer. Um, is that is that a correct read to say that that's you circumventing the vulnerability? It's interesting. I know. Uh, um, I think it's a pretty vulnerable moment to say N plus one says I'm searingly brave. And then an old friend, someone who knows her very well, is like, I don't even know. I don't even know what N plus one is like right, living right. worlds of different value systems. And it's like, she's realizing in real time, like I might've put a little too much stock in this particular subculture of meaning making, <laughs> or I mean the subject of being a writer and being a teacher of writing and going and doing talks and, um, readings that go badly (laughs) like there's like a number of disastrous public uh, figure moments in this so that's part of what is at uh being kind of satirized and kind of just gently um observed you're also talking directly to your critics in that particular at least i think dialogue Mm. It seems like it, but it's actually more like my inner critic, you know? Yeah, I read that section. It's called The Scene at the Arb. I read it a lot. I read it last night at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, and um, one time I read it and a student said, like, is that true what they said about your second book? That it the critical consensus on your second book is that people really like your first book? And I was like, oh, that's so sweet of you to ask. No, it's not so much that that's what others have said. It's what I have said to myself. Right, right. Yeah, so it's like externalizing them and like talking to them, but it's like sock puppets. I almost hand sold this book in our store to a customer as Eat, Pray, Love, but like with actual heart. (laughs) What are your thoughts there? Yeah, Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Interesting, interesting. Is that that a good sell? (laughs) I think so. I mean, did it work, I guess? I haven't read Eat, Pray, Love, so I can't evaluate or criticized but yeah I it seems like um they're both really I don't know how different because I haven't read Pray Love but um it seems like approaching the question of like what are you going to do with all your freedom Mm -hmm. um I felt a spiritual connection to this text. I mean, I often do with your writing, but just as an example, uh, the night before I had found myself at my regular dive speaking to another regular who for some reason felt like complaining about how acronyms to him made no sense. Um, And then the next afternoon, I'm picking up this book and there on page 97, the narrator is saying, why do people have trust issues with acronyms? Um, For you, does writing have this sort of higher being type of feeling for you? Does it feel bigger than what we can perceive in reality um, almost like religious, like despite it being an attempt to actually observe what is happening in reality. Yes, yes, that's so well said. Yeah, it is an exercise in perception. It's a byproduct of the writing itself is a byproduct of just being very alive, very awake, as observant as possible. And and like you, one of the things that I observe is how much I can't observe or how much. Um, my obs 
you know, my perception is projection as, as the new agers say, you know, like you create your, so much of your reality and we're such meaning making creatures. We just have this like hyperactive drive, the ego or whatever you want to call it. A lot of different disciplines have gotten to this same idea, the process of meaning making and it's, magical applications and it's maladaptive applications, you know, and it's shortcomings and the process of writing and um, making the story of your life is like an interesting one to examine to me. And I think we all do it. I think this, this writing is just a, I guess a practice, you know, and I've done it for a long time. I was just reminded by my same friend, Ryan, about this notebook I used to keep in middle school. Starting in middle school, I kept a composition notebook and I still have them. I always have one going and I just basically write, I would write down, um, it was because I was really into Jerry Seinfeld, <laughs> like really into Jerry Seinfeld. This is like when Seinfeld was ending and I read Jerry Seinfeld's books, which are just his jokes like printed, but I read all of them. And mm-hmm. um, Sign Language was one of his books. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. and I started keeping this like, it was like, a, I was as if I was going to make a stand-up act. Mm-hmm. funny things people said and what I thought about them and why do people blah 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 like observational mm-hmm. humor like that mm-hmm. and you can see that in that moment of like kind of pedantic she's being very shitty very small very mean I think to her friends and they're just saying like is this what passes for like being a human in your world like complaining that someone says ATM machine you know like you're you're kind of miserable and wretched at this moment, you know, but it's true. It is annoying. ATM machine. <laughs> machine. I mean, it, I, I also do stand up actually. And it's, um, mm-hmm. it's funny cause it's true. It's just, mm-hmm. it's always funny cause it's true. It's that's why people are laughing. That's why they're slapping their knee because you're speaking some sort of, yeah, it's just true. Um, there are many references in the novel. I was horrified to learn as a young and childless woman um, of extra teeth that basically grow in your vagina after your baby is born because growing your baby has confused your vagina about how many teeth it should grow. Let me know if that's a gross reduction of the situation. But uh, regardless, vaginal teeth are referenced a lot in the book. Um, mm-hmm. Isn't it an attempt to relay this almost sort of Frankenstein feeling women have after giving birth, a sort of shock at what your own body can do? Or was it secretly pleasurable, not shocking, to again learn like, holy crap, look at what my body can do? Oh, yeah, it's probably more like pleasurable, more mystifying, more magical for me. um, Birth facts, like just learning about the facts of birth are, it was extremely, I mean, it changed my whole worldview. Like it changed me on a spiritual level. I can't really overstate how much it changed me to to go through the process of giving birth and largely because I learned a lot about it because that's just what I do when I'm doing something as I read about it and um, learning that yes, in some cases you can have a vaginal dermoid cyst that may be the uh, grow as a tooth because the baby leaves some of its DNA in you. What? What do you mean? Um, Vagina (laughs) dentata? What? Like, what's happening here? Um, Or 
Like, um, if you're a woman and you're pregnant with a daughter, as I was, your daughter grows her organs. You grow, you, the woman, grow your daughter's organs with your blood, with your minerals, the things that you eat and drink and breathe in. And you grow everything, and including their, her ovaries, which have all of the eggs that they'll ever have in their life. So half of the genetic material of your own grandchild is within your uterus. That's insane to me as someone whose mom watched atomic bombs being dropped on the Nevada desert and who has been obsessed with the conundrum of how to communicate across 10,000 years, the lifespan that nuclear waste is toxic, right? Like I've just been thinking on these like longer timelines because I grew up in like atomic country and then to learn, oh, the egg that is me was in my grandma, right? Like, of course, that makes so much sense. Um, So yeah, and other fields again are kind of like uh, sciences right now just like engaged in confirming the work of the mystics who have said things like this for a long long time you know like uh in epigenetics or polyvagal theory or whatever it's like oh yeah the witches were right (laughs) of course i mean on that note on page 268 you write I practice not wanting more, but my teeth always did. I feel like we're going full circle now. If our appetites seek pleasure, and if this book endorses pleasure-seeking, what do you think of the practice of not wanting more? Hmm. Well, yeah, I, I suppose it's like a, an exercise in like distinguishing certain types of pleasure like on different timelines, you know, like instant gratification versus the pleasure of working on something for a long, long time and then eventually releasing your teeth, you know, or working for generations to make sure that we have like a livable planet with water and air on it in hundreds of years. Um, There's different types of like pleasure and and orientation, but that we have to sort of um, like re-embody, I guess it's kind of a, a manifesto about urging people to get re-embodied and replaced you know Wallace Segner talked about himself as a being a placed versus a displaced person and that um if you're really embodied and really placed um it's kind of like that's the path to peace and to like active um cooperative like survival and thriving and um in a given given what we are facing i think that's that's sort of what it's interested in is like once you get yourself okay the way that you can care for others and um it seems obvious what to do from there once you just stop doing everything that feels awful i love you but i have chosen darkness do we always have a choice in the matter? In dissecting this lineage of yours, your family line before and continuing on with the birth of your young child, do you really think we always have a choice in the matter? We clearly can't choose our parents, for instance. No, no, not at all. Um, yeah, 
the, the options are often quite limited. One of my teachers, when I was studying the literature of the American West, would say, we are who we are because of where we are. You know? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, there are, but so I guess it's like when, knowing when you do choose. It's like I grew up in um, Alcoholics Anonymous. That was like our family religion. And I spent a lot of time in the Triangle Club of Pahrump, Nevada, listening to that uh, belief system and how it was practiced in a very urgent way. Like, this is like a religion, and if it doesn't work, you're going to die really fast. It's it's really like a interesting thought system to me these days. Mm-hmm. Anyway, one of the ideas that's central to the healing in that context is telling your story, telling your rock-bottom story, and not bullshitting yourself. If you bullshit yourself, it's not going to work. And the easiest person to lie to is yourself. But it's like a, about a process of, um, and and it's crucial to distinguish the things you can change from the things you can't change. The things that you can choose versus the things you can't choose. And then um, for the things that we can't choose, then the question becomes like, what am I going to do about that? Am I okay with that? Like, am I, is it okay with me that I don't have the choice to um, not have, like, air pollution where I live, right? That right. seems like not, I'm not okay with that. I want that to be a choice that people are allowed to make, that they choose clean air, things like that. Yeah. Thank you, Claire. This is great. Um, yeah, likewise. Those are such good questions. Oh, thank you so much. Um uh, Library St. Henry books, uh, customers, any other one, any other people out there listening, you can pick up a copy of I Love You But I've Chosen Darkness, as well as Claire's other books um, at St. Henry Books. It is out now. Um, and thank you again. Thank you. Bye.